8 to 13. There are not 12 chapters in 2 Timothy, so it would be hard to read that chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. So we're stepping back into the book of 2 Timothy today after three weeks of intermissions. It was a wonderful few weeks uh, as we focused on extending the love of God in Jesus to our own community across the United States through starting new churches and ultimately around the globe. And through our auction for the nations and our Lottie Moon offering on Sunday, we raised just shy of $75,000, which all goes to missionaries and mission projects around the world. So that's, that's awesome. And I think it's actually one of our highest years ever. So kudos to all of you for your generosity. Uh, if you're like me and you missed out on intermissions because you were sick, which is a massive bummer, um, and you still want to give to the Lottie Moon missions offering, you can still give. If you want to take that, you know, $74,141.30 and round it up to a nice even $100,000, I knew is what you were thinking, that's what I was thinking, uh, feel free, no, but if you still want to jump in and give, you weren't there, um, you can use one of those ways to give if you missed out. The other, if you do get sick in future years, though I learned this year, uh, if you want to bid through a friend who's there, you can do that too, if you trust your friend enough to spend your money. Um, but it's, it's kind of cool because you can bid on things and you can bid against someone that they don't know it's you who's bidding against them. You know, they think it's somebody else. So that's kind of fun. But anyways, as we return to 2 Timothy this morning, it's worth noting that this book and the two books next to it, uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, are often called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters because they were written to these two church leaders, Timothy and Titus, about how to lead a church. So on one hand, the pastorals uh, is a fitting title for these books. But on the other hand, these letters might more accurately be categorized as mission field correspondence. Because what you have with books like 2 Timothy is members of a band of missionaries who have all been split up. And as the Apostle Paul traveled through the ancient world starting churches, he would leave his lieutenants like Timothy and Titus in certain cities to help establish these fledgling churches and then turn the churches over to local leaders called pastors or elders. So Paul would write to these delegates or these lieutenants uh, about plans and 
issues and personal things that they needed to work on, work through in the missionary task together. So, this letter, though called the pastorals traditionally, is not just for pastors and church leaders. It's for missionaries too, which, if you remember George Robinson's admonition from the first week of intermissions, being a missionary is not a matter of geography, but identity. Philip Jensen says, a missionary is not someone who travels overseas. A missionary is somebody on a mission. The essence is not the travel, but the purpose-directed life of taking the gospel to others. Now, this is not to take away from the importance of cross-cultural missions and the need that we have for that. But what Jensen is saying and what I'm saying is that this book is for all of us who want to live a purpose-directed life of taking the gospel to others. So, as we step back into 2 Timothy, realize we're reading a very mission-oriented book. That's its context. So, it has a whole lot to teach us, all of us, about what it means to live for God's purposes of extending His love in Christ throughout the world. Now, if you can remember before all the craziness that was intermissions, back to the passage that Jake Mason taught us just before this one, Paul just, fin- he just finished comparing living on mission for God to being a loyal soldier or a hardworking farmer or a committed athlete. And you can sum up the message of that section of the book like this, living your life for Christ is going to be really, 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 really hard. Like being a soldier in wartime is hard. Like being a farmer is hard. Like being uh, an athlete that's training for an event, they have to get up early in the morning before everyone else is up to go run. They don't get to eat like everybody else gets to eat at Thanksgiving. It's, it's hard. So much of 2 Timothy, it's, it's this kind of thing on repeat. Living for Christ will be extremely difficult. It will take endurance, perseverance, never giving up stick with itness. Paul has literally told Timothy twice already in the letter, join me in suffering for the cause of Christ. Uh, chapter 1, verse 8 He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering, or join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 3, this was in our passage last time, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's an interesting recruitment strategy, you know? Let's try using that for kids' ministry volunteers, you know? Join me in suffering for the cause of Christ. I mean, we're always kind of hyping up serving Jesus in various ways, aren't we? We're trying to talk you into the benefits uh, that you'll get from it. You know, guys like me are pretty much always telling you how good Christianity is for you, how knowing God and His love and sharing it, that's really what you've been longing for your whole life anyway, isn't it? And doesn't Jesus Himself say, come to me? You who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
So which one is it? And of course, both are true in a sense. This is one of the paradoxes of Christian living. At the same time, it's both incredibly light and freeing, and yet also downright difficult. So Paul doesn't sugarcoat things uh, with, with Timothy here. He sets his expectations. Living for God and his mission in the world, it's going to be really hard, Timothy. It's going to hurt. And at some point, you're going to hit a wall and you're going to want to give up. When I say hit a wall, some of you know what I mean. That's athlete speak for when you feel like you physically cannot run any further. When your body has burned up all of its carbohydrate energy and extreme feelings of fatigue begin to set in. Uh, one runner described it as running through cement. Another runner said, it felt like an elephant had jumped out of a tree onto my shoulders and was making me carry it the rest of the race. And another one called it a bizarre, disorienting, scary experience. Your brain sends loud signals that you're going to die. You won't, but it feels that way. Now, I talked to a guy in between the services who's a serious swimmer. <laughs> and he said, yeah, when you hit a wall swimming, there's no wall to hold on to. <laughs> like, you're in a lake or the ocean. I was like, oh, that's a good point. If your brain tells you you're going to die, like, I, I don't know what you do. It's like, it's a sink or swim here, you know. I didn't think about that in my illustration. So, props to swimmers. But what happens when you hit a wall in your Christian journey or ministry, and you feel like you can go no further. You say, I just don't feel like I can continue to say no to my sinful desires any longer. It's too hard, and it's time to walk away. There's too many rules, too many expectations, and way too little fun. Or you might wonder, do I really have to pursue forgiveness when I've been wounded so badly? Do I really have to love my enemies? This is hard. Or, why should I keep on prioritizing the church when the people there don't seem to have prioritized me? It's too hard. I can't keep my marriage vows, not with this person. Count me out. It's too hard. Or, my suffering is so great. I can't see why God would have, would, have, would have allowed it. And I'm angry at him. Why did I trust him in the first place? I've prayed. I haven't seen God do anything. I'm done. It's too hard. Or I don't like the difficult process of change in my life. I don't like people in the church knowing about my business, getting involved in my life. I just want to be left alone. It's too hard. Or you might feel like I'm always being ridiculed for being a Christian, and I'm just tired of it. I'm done speaking up for Jesus or trying to. It's too hard. Or leading, serving in this ministry, it's just a waste of time, honestly. No one thanks me. Everyone's always complaining, and I'm sick of even caring. I'm done. What do you do when you hit a wall? Maybe some of us are there right now. How do you endure when it would be so much easier to quit the race altogether? And if you're not there now, you will be someday. So Paul gives Timothy and us three things in this passage to help us run when we've hit a wall. 
He says, first, look back. Second, look around. And then third, look forward. So look back, look around, and then look forward. So look back. Uh, Look in verse 8 with me. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So his first encouragement for you when you hit a wall is to remember Jesus Christ. Look at him. Fix your eyes on him. Don't forget who he was and what he did. And Paul, he he wants to highlight two things about Jesus especially here, two things. One, that he's risen from the dead, and second, that he was the offspring of David. Now, why would he highlight these two particular aspects of Jesus? His resurrection and his lineage. I think both practically have a way of helping us endure in a Christian life. Let's tackle them in reverse order. So he says, Jesus, the offspring of David. Now, what's up with that? Seems kind of random. Jesus, David's offspring. Cool. Thanks for the history lesson, man. Uh, But I think he says this to remind Timothy and us that Jesus is the fulfillment of some long, long long-awaited promises rooted in a very, very old story. In the Old Testament books, long before 2 Timothy, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, there's this scene where God comes to David and He promises him that one day He'll take one of His descendants and establish their rule and their reign forever. This is in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, for example. You can read there. This is one of the parts of Scripture that led the Jewish people to anticipate a Messiah. Paul says Jesus is the offspring of David. This matters because it would have been easy to think in Timothy's day and ours. Remind me again why we are worshiping a first century crucified Jewish carpenter. Like, why why are we doing that? Out of all the religious options that we have, why this? This is so out of the blue, just random and odd. You really think that guy, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Son of God. But when Paul says he's the offspring of David, he's pointing back to a story that goes quite a bit further back than you might think. He's saying Jesus is the climactic chapter in a story that's been winding through all of history, from Adam and Eve to Noah to Joseph to the Exodus to David. God has been guiding the story of humanity to a place where He Himself would step in and rescue us. Jesus is not a random Jewish carpenter. He's the specific fulfillment of some very specific promises that have been awaited for a long, long time, right down to His genealogy, to His lineage, to His genes for an answer, like G-E-N-E-S, not J-E-A. I don't think they were those kind of genes back in the day. But I think His point here is that if God can be trusted to keep His promises on track throughout the eons of history, will He not come through for you? Might it take him some time? (laughs) Yes. Might he do this on his own timetable, not yours? Yes. But will he eventually make good on his plans and promises? Yes, he will. Remember Jesus, the offspring of David. Paul also says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. 
Why bring this up out of all the things about Jesus? Risen from the dead. See, I think this helps us endure in the Christian life because we see that in the end, Jesus wins. He doesn't just have a heart of sympathy for you in your suffering, but He has victory awaiting you in the end. God does not leave His servants in the ground at the end of the day. I like how Pastor Tony Marita says it from uh, Imago Dei Church here in Raleigh. He says, when your tank is empty, remember the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Remember Jesus. Think on Him. Dwell on Him. Keep Him in front of you each day. Um, Time Magazine reported a few years ago that the human attention span seems to be shrinking each year in the digital age. This is probably not news to you, but a Microsoft study indicated that while our attention span was about 12 seconds long in the year 2000, it had shrunk to about 8 seconds by the year 2015, which I don't know how that works or how you even listen to sermons and stuff with that kind of attention span, but great job. Uh, but it's one second worse than the infamously ill-focused goldfish, which clocks in at about nine seconds attention span. Now, that was eight seconds in 2015. I don't even want to know how we're doing in 2023, you know. In another study, uh, it said we pick up our phones around 144 times per day on average. You don't actually have to trust the statistics, though. You can just look at your screen time on your phone and see how many times you picked up the phone. 90% of us look at our phones within 10 minutes of waking up. 75% of us feel uneasy if we leave our phones at home. 50% of us become anxious or feel a sense of panic when our phones hit low battery. <sighs> yeah. 75% um, of us use the phone while on the toilet. Uh, the other 25, I think, are just too embarrassed to admit it in the survey. <laughs> and 57% of people feel they are addicted to their phones. Now, my intent here is not to bash phones or technology, mostly thankful for it. But you have to admit, we do live in a distracted, fast-paced, attention-poor time these days. We have to train ourselves to set Jesus before us, to remember Him, to fix our gaze on Him. Uh, Robert Murray McChaney who was well-known for creating a Bible reading plan in the 1800s, takes you through the whole Bible in a year. It's kind of a stout reading plan. If you're going to read through the Bible in a year, you got to keep up. you got to read maybe seven to eight chapters a day. And he once gave a rationale for why he created this type of Bible reading plan. He said this. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. This is why McChaney says you should read your Bible every day. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. You don't read your Bible just to check a box. You read your Bible to set your eyes on Jesus Christ so that your attention is fixed on Him from day to day. And if you want to make it through the wall, you must find a way to keep Jesus Christ before your face, to remember Him, to not forget who He is, what He's done, and how He loves you. 
So how to, how to keep running when you hit a wall? First, look back and remember him. Remember Jesus Christ. Second, it says, look around. Look around. Uh, verse 9, or the end of verse 8 and then 9 and 10. As preached in my gospel, remember Jesus, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul says, when you've hit a wall, you see no point in going any further. Look around. Look and see how the Word of God, the gospel, look how it's going forward in the world. Even when its best leaders are in chains or in prison, it's not stopped. Paul writes this, remember, while shackled to a Roman guard in a dark, damp prison. He's bound in chains as a common criminal, he says, but the Word of God is not bound. It goes onward. You can bury the workmen, but the work will go on, we sing sometimes. So I endure whatever suffering I must, Paul says. And just to stop and pause for a sidebar here, uh, for, for anybody here who's trying to sort out the truth claims of Christianity, like, is this, is this really true? Should I believe this? If you're wrestling with that. Um, to me, this passage in places like this, these are authenticating marks of the early Christian's genuine faith. It's often said and believed today that all claims to truth are really just a power play on somebody else. That I, when I claim something's true, really true, like Jesus Christ is Lord of the world and the Son of God, that's just me trying to get you to believe what I believe so I can exert more power over your life. See, all, all truth claims are just, just power plays. But if that's the case, and if that was the case in the first century, Paul's life makes no sense to me. And the lives of the first Christians make no sense to me. But because becoming a Christian in the first century was anything but a power play, it was a death sentence. I think they really thought this was true. They really believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they were so convinced of this truth, they were willing to lay down their social status, to lay down their wealth, to even lay down their lives. I'm not saying that proves Christianity's truth, but I am saying it gives very strong evidence that these first Christians and Paul really believed Jesus was raised from the dead. And at the heart of their truth claim was love. A man who gave himself for his enemies, taught them to forgive their tormentors. So, just some food for thought for you. If you're wrestling through, is this true or not? That's something to think about. And Paul was, he was so convinced of this that he said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, God's chosen people, so that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Okay, what does he mean here? Well, he's saying that if God is going to gather in and save all his people from all over the earth, then this would inevitably involve Paul's own suffering. The spread of Christianity was going to come at a cost. There was no way around it. This was not a surprise to Paul, though. If you remember his conversion story, remember he's on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, 
He has this vision of Christ, loses his sight for several days, and he's totally homebound, just sitting there contemplating what in the world or who in the world he just encountered on that road. And God then speaks in a vision to this other Christian named Ananias. He tells Ananias, you know, go to this street called Straight, and you're going to find this man named Saul, and I want you to pray for him that he would regain his sight. And Ananias is like, um, you mean Saul, Saul? No. Do you know this guy? He hogties Christians and drags them away to prison. But God responds to Ananias and says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew this would be part of his lot as a Christian. He would have to suffer for the gospel to go forward. But he did it because he believed that's what it would take, and that if he did, God would save some, no matter how hard it got. So he endured for the sake of God's chosen people. And I think it begs the question for us, North Wake, What are we willing to endure to bring the saving love of Jesus Christ to others? It's 2023, but that is still going to cost us something. Mabel Williamson uh, was a missionary in the mid-1900s with the China Inland Mission, which is uh, famous for being founded by Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China. But Mabel Williamson is not a well-known figure. Uh, She authored a short book for missionaries called Have We No Rights? And her thesis in the book was that it's not the loss of comfort that's so hard for a missionary, it's the loss of rights, what feels like to us rights. Uh, This is what she said in her book. She said, on the mission field, it's not the enduring of hardships, the lack of comforts, and the roughness of the life that make the missionary cringe and falter. It is something far less romantic and far more real. The missionary has to give up having his own way. He has to give up having any rights. He has, in the words of Jesus, to deny himself. Now, I know that book was written for missionaries, but given what we said at the beginning about who a missionary is, this is for all Jesus' disciples, for all who would seek to advance his mission. This is for us, too. Mabel goes on to outline the rights that she has in mind that we have to sacrifice. These are the chapter headings of her little book. You can find it online easily for free and and read it, but I'll just tell you some of the table of contents or her chapter headings. They go like this, the right to what I consider a normal standard of living, the right to the ordinary safeguards of good health, the right to regulate my private affairs as I wish the right to my own time, the right to a normal romance, the right to a normal home life, the right to live with the people of my choice, the right to feel superior, perhaps worst of all, the right to run things. You know, we we hear a list like this as Americans, we kind of object internally, you know, I have rights. Have you not read the Constitution? I'm a son or daughter of liberty. 
What about the Son of God? Did he have rights? The right to the throne of heaven? The right to leave us in our sin? And yet, what did he do with his rights? Uh, Williamson ends her book like this. Let me just read the the last page of her book. She said, he had no rights. No right to a soft bed or a well-laid table. No right to a home of his own, a place where his own pleasure might be sought. No right to choose pleasant companions, those who could understand him and sympathize with him. No right to shrink away from filth and sin, to pull his garments closer around him and turn aside to walk in cleaner paths. No right to be understood and appreciated. No, not by those upon whom he had poured out a double portion of his love. No right even never to be forsaken by his Father, the one who meant more than all to him. His only right was silently to endure shame, spitting, blows, to take his place as a sinner at the dock, to bear my sins in anguish on the cross. He had no rights. And I, a right to the comforts of life? No, but a right to the love of God for my pillow. A right to physical safety? No, but a right to the security of being in His will a right to love and sympathy from those around me? No, but a right to the friendship of the one who understands me better than I do myself. A right to be a leader among men? No, but the right to be led by the one to whom I've given my all, led as a little child with its hand in the hand of its father. A right to a dear to a home and to dear ones? No, not necessarily, but a right to dwell in the heart of God. A right to myself? No, but oh, I have a right to Christ. All that He takes, I will give, and all that He gives, I will take. He, my only right, He, the one right before which all other rights fade into nothingness, I have full right to Him. Oh, may He have full right to me. She's she's saying, when you realize that he gave up his rights for you to secure your right to call him your savior, your lover, your friend, then you can endure what feels like the loss of your most precious rights here and now, if that's what it takes for the cause of Christ in the world. And if you do, you'll see the gospel moving ahead in the world. You'll be able to keep running when you hit the wall despite significant suffering. So, look back at Christ. Look around at how His Word goes forward despite persecution and suffering. And then third, look ahead. Look ahead. Look at verse 11. It says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, 
for he cannot deny himself. So Paul ends this section of the letter with um, what he calls a trustworthy saying. There's a few of these sayings sprinkled throughout uh, these letters. Maybe this was part of an early Christian song, a Christian hymn or something like that. So let's, let's look at the lines here. They sort of go together in pairs, the first line or the first pair. It says, if we've died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Which means that dying and enduring is part and parcel of the Christian life in the here and now. Dying, enduring, or the way Jesus said it, you will have to lose your life for my sake. But whoever loses their life will find it. Paul's saying the same thing. If we died with him, we will live with him. We'll find a new life, a new kind of life, and we will reign with him. Which I rather like how it says that. It's kind of an interesting thing to say. We will reign with Christ. What in the world? Well, you see, Jesus is not just a master looking for eternal slaves, but he's a king calling up vice regents. So it's no wonder that C.S. Lewis had Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy to be kings and queens of Narnia that would rule alongside the great, As, uh, the great lion, Aslan. This is what Christ has in store for those who endure for him, reigning with him in a renewed heavens and a new earth. But the second line, if we deny him, he will also deny us. This is sobering, but it's also rooted in Jesus' own words also, uh, Matthew chapter 10. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, if this is true, I, I usually tend to put my money on Jesus being right then denying the faith, or what's more popularly called deconstructing, is no small matter. What you do with Christ is high stakes. Why endure as a Christian instead of just giving up? Well, Paul says, look ahead. There's a last day. You need to zoom out. Your perspective needs to get a lot bigger. It needs to go way forward. Look ahead. There's a last day. And based on this passage, if you openly, persistently deny Christ, then you have no reason to expect that on that day, God will do anything other than grant you exactly what you asked from Him, eternal disownment. And that's not fear-mongering, but meant to be a loving warning in this letter. And then the very last part of this line says this, if we are faithless, He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. This is uh, a little more difficult to interpret than the other sections. Some understand this line to mean that for those who have momentary lapses in faithfulness, you might think of like Peter's denials where he denies Christ but then comes back around, he repents. This line may, may mean then that Christ will still hold those people fast, for he cannot deny those whom he's truly made his own. That's one understanding of this line, and that's true. That's a true statement. Others understand this, this last line not to be a word of comfort, but to underscore the previous word of warning, meaning that even if some show themselves to be faithless in the end, 
Christ will still be faithful and consistent to His own character in judgment. In other words, He does not change, even if we do. Now, which of these two is the correct interpretation? I'm not 100% certain. And yet, at some level, both interpretations serve a larger point, which is that Christ will be faithful. He will be faithful to His church and to His character, both to confirm and establish His own children who are weak and faltering, but He will also be faithful to finally judge those who have rejected Him. So, Paul says, look ahead, look to the last day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed says. And then look around. See how the gospel continues to move forward, even when massive barriers are raised against it, then its best leaders are imprisoned or exiled or die. The gospel will still move forward. And then perhaps most importantly, look back. Remember Jesus Christ truly man, truly God, dying in our place, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. All of God's promises are yes in Him. Remember Him, treasure Him, and yes, let's proclaim Him. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank You for Your good Word to us. And Lord, I especially pray for those who, who are here today who maybe feel like they have hit a wall. They've hit a wall in living for you, in pursuing you, in serving you, and they don't know what to do or where to go. And if that's not us today, it, it will be one day. So would you take this passage, take your words, plant them deep within us, and strengthen us through them as we remember Christ, how He gave up His rights for us so we could have the right to call You, God, our, our very Father. So when we are discouraged, lift our heads to see Jesus once again, to see His Word going forth, and to see the last day grant us perspective in our suffering and establish us in Christ, we pray. Amen.